0: Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast episode, handcrafted for your pure, sinophilistic enjoyment. Today's story concerns the rise and fall of the Jewish community in China, centered in the city of Kaifeng, Henan Province. The Jews in China went way back. No one knows for sure just how far back that was, although there's plenty of speculation. To quote a certain former U.S. cabinet official from the Bush 43 administration, quote, There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. There are also known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know we don't know. End quote. I couldn't have said it any better myself. And as I dug deeper into their history, I concluded you could say the same thing about the Kaifeng Jews, too. But it's a great story, so let's look at what was up with that. I guess it's part urban legend and part common knowledge that there was this lost colony of Chinese Jews in China or that there was this thriving native Jewish community there. Those more schooled in Chinese history might know this Jewish center in China was in the city of Kaifeng but not necessarily knowing where Kaifeng was, and certainly not knowing why Kaifeng, of all places, and not the usual suspects of Beijing, Chang'an, or Luoyang. So the purpose of today's episode is simply to try and sort everything out and give you the main idea. A lot of people have heard of the Kaifeng Jews, but other than that, they can't say much about the subject at a cocktail party or even a Seder. This is a story that goes back as far as the origins of the Silk Roads. The Jews, of course, came from Israel, and some left this land voluntarily, or as was most often the case, involuntarily and sought out greener pastures elsewhere. Jewish merchants were among the earliest people to traverse the Silk Road when it started ramping up during the Han Dynasty. Remember Zhang Qian? He made his first journey to the west between 138 and 126 BC, the time of the Han Emperor Wu, Han Wu Di. This is where the whole Silk Road history takes off. So Jews had been coming to China since at least then. They didn't stay for long or build a community, but they had made their way to Xi'an and all the great Central Asian trading centers that had already sprung up along the pathways of the Silk Roads. Trading luxuries along the Silk Road was something that Jewish people, small though their numbers were, played an unusually large role. There evolved a group of Jewish merchants called the Rodanites. Their origin is unclear, but for centuries, they managed a big time trading operation that sold goods throughout all the major markets of the known world between the Frankish Empire and China. They went back as far as the Merovingian dynasty mid-5th century, and covered all the overland and sea routes between the west and the east. They were in the middle of everything. We know of these Jewish traders from the Persian geographer and writer Ibn Khordadbeh, who lived from 820 to 912. This was the time of Islam's third caliphate, the Abbasid. He wrote a book of the times that managed to make it to this day without getting burned or lost to eternity. And this book mentions the Rodenites as being Jewish traders. And he said they were particularly gifted in all the languages of the Silk Road, and they carried out trade by land and by sea. In the Persian language, or at least back then, Ra meant path or way, and Dan means one who knows. So they were the ones who knew the path or knew the way to China and back, presumably. The Radonites, however, were all gone by the 11th century. And once the Crusades kicked in, it really threw all the trading operations into disarray, and it was right around then or shortly thereafter that there's no further mention of these Radanite traders. What an amazing life these guys must have led from Han to Song. When hostilities between Christians and Muslims threw a wrench in the supply chain, the Radonites were often the go-to merchants of choice because at that time, Jews and Muslims got along famously, or at least better than the Christians and Muslims. So they played a unique role in the linking of the markets of East and West during unstable times in that part of the world. The earliest evidence of a Jewish presence in China was pegged at the 8th century AD, the Tang Dynasty. Also from that period, there's the cornucopia of artifacts discovered by Sir Oral Stein and Dunhuang. These Persian and Hebrew writings found in the caves of Dunhuang dated back to this Tang period and mentioned the Jews. Again, the Radonites were by now a major force at that time. And if anyone chanced upon someone of the Jewish faith in China, well, for sure they wouldn't be in the entertainment business or a doctor. It's almost certain this Jewish person... Walking around Tang Dynasty China was doing the same exact thing any Sogdian, Persian, Arab, or other Central Asian was doing. They were all plying their wares along the silk roads connecting east and west. And these traders from all points between China and Rome were the worker bees of the whole system. Despite the regular visits from Jewish travelers and traders, there was still no known Jewish settlement or central place in China where you were always guaranteed to find a minion or a hot kosher meal. The popular consensus regarding how long the Jews have been coming to China says it's at least since the Han, with no settlements until the Song. There's no proof of life in the Zhou Dynasty, although Jews are mentioned in one of the stone steles we'll get to in a moment. There's also this far out theory that claims in 721 BC, when the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and exiled the ten tribes, one of them escaped to Asia and came to China, or at least to India. Just a theory the lost tribe of Israel. The period of the Han Dynasty, incidentally, coincided with the Roman persecution of Jews in Judea. 70 AD? You know, this was a bad year for the Jewish race. About 70 AD, Titus destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and the Jews scattered, but not before a million of their people fell to the Roman armies, and 100,000 were sold into slavery. The first Jewish-Roman war, not ending well for the Jews, and when they rose up against Hadrian in 132 AD, once again, it won't end well for them. Now, whether these wars with the Romans provided any extra impetus for Jews from conquered Judea to escape the heat and flee to Han China, well, that's purely speculative. It's certainly a possibility. At this time, the Silk Road was already in existence and had been for a couple centuries. The Jews were heavily involved in the east-west trade all along these routes there were these Roman, Babylonian, Assyrian persecutions. These are all facts that we know, although the detail is severely lacking. There's plenty to hang your hat on later on when the Southern Song kicks in. So despite the dearth of evidence to the contrary, it's safe to say Jews were visiting China during the Han Dynasty. But being almost 2,000 years ago, this kanji is about as thin as you can get, and we're left only to speculate about what their life was in China. The Tang was a golden time, at least for a while. There was a tremendous amount of tolerance for all the religions and races. Followers of Islam, Judaism, Manichaeism, Zoroastrianism, Nestorianism could all be found in the capital Chang'an. It was the most amazing and cosmopolitan city in the world. Because the Jews were so dominant in the trade of silks, spices, and other luxuries, they came to Tang China quite often. In 781, this was during the time of the Tang Emperor Dezong, the city of Bien was founded. It will go by several names. Bienliang is another. Bienliang was the name of the city during the Song Dynasty. It's best known to us today as the city of Kaifeng. It was located right on the south bank of the Yellow River, just west of the Grand Canal. The Grand Canal we discussed in the last episode, it was the Wu King Fu Chai who built the Han Go that served as the beginning of the Grand Canal. And the canal, the greatest engineering marvel of its day, would be built and completed in 609 AD under the Sui Emperor Yang. Now that was quite a feat in its day. Digging a man-made canal the distance from LA to Dallas, 1400 miles. Let me quote the Song Dynasty poet Qin Guan who said of this ancient city, quote, Kaifeng, surrounded by level land in all directions, is a convergence of roads which connect it with the Chu River to the south, the Han River to the west, the Zhao River to the north, and the Qi River to the east. Neither great mountain ranges nor big rivers isolate Kaifeng from the surrounding regions. In fact, its communication with them is aided by the Bien and Tai and other rivers. The waterways teem with boats, the bow of one touching the stern of another, while men, carts, and animals jam the roads in an endless flow from every corner of the country. End quote. Kaifeng was, in its day, not just the capital, but the commercial and political center of Song China, as well as the richest, most vibrant economy on the planet, and had been for centuries. The Silk Road didn't just end in Xi'an or Chang'an. It also led further up the road to Kaifeng as well. Kaifeng, like Xi'an, attracted merchants from all over the world. Over a million people lived there during the Song Today, there's four to five times that number. Back in the Tang, it was only about a 10-day, two-week trek for a caravan to set out from Xi'an to Kaifeng. This area of China is as ancient as China could be. Running east to west, one after the other, were the cities of Kaifeng, Zhengzhou, Luoyang, Sanmenxia, Weinan, and Xi'an. Weinan, of course, the birthplace of Sima Qian, who we quote often in these podcasts, this slice of Shanxi and Henan served as the epicenter of ancient Chinese history from mythical times all the way up to the Song. So the moral to the story is this was in its day perhaps the largest commercial center in the world. So it was only natural that these Jews from all over the Middle East and Central Asia would find their way to Kaifeng they didn't choose Kaifeng just for its proximity to the Yellow River. In the Song dynasty, this was the place to be. On the opposite end of these roads that all led to Kaifeng were the markets of Europe, Asia, and Africa. That's perhaps the primary reason why the Jews ended up congregating in Kaifeng and decided to stay for a few centuries. The sea routes were a different matter, and by the time of the Tang and Song, the seas were dominated by Persian and Arab fleets. These traders left behind plenty of writings and evidence attesting to the role of these Jewish merchants. There were Jewish merchants all over China, and they could be found wherever there were major commercial centers. Guangzhou, Quanzhou, Ningbo, Yangzhou, and Hangzhou. There could have been settlements at All these places, and there could have been synagogues built too, but it was only in one place, where historical records survive that shows unimpeachable evidence of a Jewish settlement and native people following Jewish laws and traditions, just as their fellow Jews in Europe. And that's really the main part of our story. In 1163, the Jewish residents of Kaifeng received the OK to build their synagogue along with all the necessary extras required of a Jewish community, a mikvah, a sukkah, and a place to butcher meat, according to the Jewish dietary laws. This temple was flanked on two sides by teaching Torah Lane North and teaching Torah Lane South. The Southern Song Emperor Xiaozong himself had given the approval and even gave an imperial order that Kaifeng's Jewish residents follow the customs of their forefathers and settle in Pianliang, which, as I said, was what Kaifeng was called back then. And the original Jewish settlers in Kaifeng were 70 Jewish clans who left en masse with their families and everything they owned. And they brought with them everything from their previous synagogue, including the Torah scrolls, of course. And this was a caravan that had a destination in mind. The locals in China sort of grouped them in with the Muslims. This was because on the surface, anyone not familiar with the religions, like in China, well, they appeared similar. So the Jews were differentiated by being called the blue-headed Muslims. There were perhaps 500 people in this one congregation. They came to Kaifeng and settled there. And these people, from far away with their strange rituals and traditions became very active in the local community. Before long, their numbers and influence began to grow. They served in the civil service, they served in the military, and these original Jewish settlers from unknown origins, as I said, took their whole families with them when they came to Kaifeng because they knew they weren't going back to where they had come from. It's no secret that Jews throughout history often had to cut and run when they ended up being singled out for persecution. Now, when I say they came from some unknown place, that's not entirely true. There is evidence that might trace this group from the Mediterranean coast of Turkey, from the town of Bodrum. Bodrum today is about a three hour car ride south of Izmir. These Jews had come to this idyllic spot from the city of Samawa in Babylonia. This is Present day Iraq, of course, and they left Babylonia in times of persecution and settled in Turkey. Although the proximity of Bodrum to the Holy Land wasn't that close, it was close enough, and the blowback from the Crusades that kicked off in 1090 made things too hot for the Jews of Bodrum, so they just picked up and left. This congregation marched through Turkey, to Persia, through Turkmenistan, Xinjiang, and finally to China proper. First arriving in Xi'an, and then further on up the road to Kaifeng. And as I said during this time in the Song, the population of Kaifeng was already over a million souls. And it was to Kaifeng, in this most ancient part of one of the most ancient provinces of China, that they came. Probably sometime in the 10th, or 11th centuries. And the story of this Jewish community is mainly told in three stone steles. I've heard that pronounced with and without the E on the end, but I'm just going with what Merriam-Webster is telling me. These carved stone steles are mostly what we have to go on as far as the timeline and a history and a point of reference as to the prayers they offered and their adherence to tradition there were four steles, but one of them was lost. They were always placed in the courtyard of the synagogue. For centuries, they stood, telling the stories of their history and displaying the prayers so that all future generations might keep the faith alive. The three steles that made it down to the present day were dated 1485, 1512, and 1663. So this is the period in the West, roughly from the time Columbus discovered America to Charles II and the restoration of the monarchy in England. The Ottomans and Europeans are at that time slugging it out on the continent. And during this time, the Jews of Kaifeng were having their heyday. The community peaked during the time of the Ming, 1368 to 1644. And then after that, late 17th century and into the 18th, from that point on, it was a slow, steady decline. Let's talk about those three Steeleys and a little about what they've told us. Trust me, there was a whole body of scholarship about these surviving limestone slabs. Go on Google Books or just use your favorite search engine to go get everything you wanted to know about these Kaifeng Steeleys, but were afraid to ask. The oldest, the 1489 stele, is divided up into three parts. It tells the biblical stories of Abraham, Moses, all the way up to Ezra, who returned the Torah to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity in the 5th century BC. And it mentions the prayers and principles of fasting and repentance. The second part of this oldest stele tells the story of the founding of the Kaifeng Synagogue in 1163. This is right about the time the compass gets discovered. And one year before the founding of this Kaifeng synagogue, somewhere on the steppes of Mongolia, Genghis Khan was born, except he wasn't called that yet. He was still Temujin. The third part of this 1489 stele is very interesting and gives a whole comparative analysis of Judaism to the three great religions of China at that time, Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism. It explained the basic principles of Judaism within the context of Chinese understanding at that time in Ming, China. The monument, dated 1512, suggests that the Jews first came to China during the Zhou Dynasty. It mentions that Judaism came to China during this time via India, but again, there's no evidence to confirm this, and there was no Silk Roads during those Bronze Age Zhou Dynasty days. This 1512 stele, the experts are still trying to figure out. It says a lot, but they're not entirely sure what it says. It did mention that there were other Jewish communities in China besides this one in Kaifeng, and that they had established contact with each other. The 1512 stele also stresses the loyalty of the Jews to the Chinese state, and even quoted the immortal words forever associated with UFA, tattooed on his back by his mother, Jin Bao Guo. It explains how the Jews of Kaifeng could be found throughout the fabric of Kaifeng society. They were officials with degrees, members of the literati, soldiers, and merchants, and they loyally served the state. And this stele has carved in it all 19 blessings from the Amida, the Shemona Esra, including the Sim Shalom. Hey, if any traveling Jews from the Middle Ages might visit this shoal in Kaifeng, they'd know. These guys were legit. The 1663 stele was similar to the one carved in 1489. It went to great lengths to compare, once again, all the similarities between Judaism and Chinese religious practices, particularly Confucianism. It mentions family, traditions, a moral basis for life, and charity to all. 1663 was quite a historic time in China. The Ming dynasty had fallen with a whimper in 1644, and this stele tells the story of the fall of the dynasty, as well as about the destruction caused by Li Zicheng and the ultimate founding of the Qing dynasty. The stele, let it be known, with all this chaos going on in China, the community was still trying to keep the religion going. As Ming transitioned to Qing, it was a rough time. The synagogue was destroyed by rebels, and anything of value that had been passed down from the time they started keeping records was just burned, looted, or stolen. This was a hard thing to bounce back from. The Jews of Kaifeng had gone to the brink a few times, but this one was looking like it was going to be a hard ditch to crawl out of. You see, Kaifeng also, being so close to the Yellow River, China's sorrow, and close to all these other rivers fell victim over the centuries to a number of natural catastrophes. Most damaging were these floods that would immerse the whole synagogue, destroying everything that couldn't be moved to higher ground. In fact, these steelies were always built whenever they would rebuild these synagogues. And this Kaifeng Synagogue was not a marble palace like Temple Shalom on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. These were totally Chinese structures, carved wood, bilateral symmetry, courtyards, sky wells, and all the decorative details that Chinese architecture is famous for. So these structures, made mostly with organic materials, didn't have a chance whenever there was a major inundation. It had to be rebuilt many times, and after things began to settle down in the Qing dynasty, the synagogue was rebuilt again in 1653. The 1489 and 1512 Steelies are today locked in a room at the Kaifeng Municipal Museum. These are, of course, a must see stop on all the Jewish history tours that have passed through Kaifeng. Anything you want to know and more can be learned from visiting this museum and meeting with a few of these descendants of the Kaifeng Jews, many of whom are actually going back to Judaism. You could fly to Zhengzhou and take a 45-minute train and you're in downtown Kaifeng? Jumping backwards, sorry about that, Marco Polo, during his 13th century travels in China, mentions running into these Jews in China in 1286. Marco Polo also, by the way, had mentioned that Kublai Khan was familiar with and celebrated the holidays of these monotheists. During the Ming Dynasty, one of the emperors had conferred upon the Chinese Jews seven surnames, Ai, Shi, Gao, Jin, Li, Zhang, and Zhao. So if you meet any descendants of Kaifeng Jews on the streets today, you have a one in seven chance of guessing their surname correctly. I guess in this story, the marquee year has to be 1605. This is the year that a fateful meeting took place. It happened between a local Kaifeng Jew named Ai Tian and the subject of our CHP 98 episode, Matteo Ricci. This is where Ai Tian meets Matteo Ricci, known around town by his Chinese name of Li Ma Dou. Ricci and the Jesuits were living in Beijing at the time. Remember, they tried and failed to get into Beijing in 1598, but the Wanli Emperor later gave Ricci the thumbs up in May of 1600. So in 1605, the Western religions were enjoying a period of great tolerance. And this tolerance, of course, we all know, isn't going to last forever. But in Beijing, 1605, it was a good time, and now this meeting was going to take place. Ai Tian, by the way, was a scholar who had passed the civil service exams and happened to be in Beijing in 1605 looking for some appointment to the Imperial Civil Service. So Aitian sought out these Jesuits and had this fateful encounter with Matteo Ricci at their Jesuit mission house in Beijing. When Ricci first met Ai Tien, he thought he was a Chinese Christian. And of course, Ai Tien believed Ricci at first was a Jew. There's an old story that says that when Tien first saw the painting in the mission house of the virgin and child, he believed this was Rebecca with either Jacob or Esau. Ricci figured out after a while, remember he spoke fluent Mandarin, was that this Aitian was in fact a Jew and not a Christian. So when Tien later returned to Kaifeng, Ricci sent along a couple of his gang, a couple Jesuits, and they accompanied Ai Tien back to Kaifeng. And sure enough, they saw there was this whole thriving community with a synagogue and a mikveh, the whole works. So these Jesuits checked them all out thoroughly and reported back to Ricci, who of course sent the report to the head office in Rome. And all these letters from Ricci and those who came after him survive in various collections. They verified that these Chinese Jews in Kaifeng were observant of the Sabbath from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, and were observant of all the Jewish festivals, very much the same as any Ashkenazi or Sephardic Jew you might encounter anywhere in Europe or the Middle East. They circumcised their sons, didn't eat pork, and had all the important Hebrew manuscripts, said the same prayers, seemed to have the same Torah, but they would check that out in detail later. From what they could see, these Kaifeng Jews were very much the same as you might find in the West. But these Jews were in Kaifeng in Hunan Province, right in the middle of the center of the cradle of Chinese civilization. Once they learned all this, the Jesuit order sent plenty of specialists to Kaifeng to learn and study these Kaifeng Jews, or as they were called, those who plucked out the tendons, referring to one of the dietary laws that the Chinese must have considered particularly foolish and wasteful, the tendons being one of the best parts to eat and all. So there's plenty in the Vatican archives regarding the Kaifeng Jews. They took a lot of notes over the next decade or so. You see, the thinking was, these Jews so isolated, who had built their first synagogue during the time of the Song Dynasty five and a half centuries before, there was this belief that they might have copies of the Torah that had by chance remained uncorrupted and uncensored by the Jewish rabbis from days gone by. The Jesuits didn't learn anything, and none of these Torah they examined in Kaifeng said anything about Jesus being the Messiah. You see, that was the deal breaker. The aged chief rabbi in Kaifeng, he just couldn't get past the point that the Messiah wasn't due for another 10,000 years. So how could this Jesus Christ be this Messiah that these visiting Jesuits claimed he was? But to show that the rabbi was a good sport, as he was getting up in the years, he invited these emissaries of Ricci to go back and tell Li Ma Do that he was welcome to replace him as chief rabbi of the Kaifeng Synagogue, assuming he would accept these Jewish beliefs. So after this amazing encounter over four centuries ago, there followed perhaps seven or eight more generations of Jews in Kaifeng before the steady decline reached a low point that the community were never able to bounce back from. The synagogue was destroyed by natural disasters and rebuilt again in 1653, but sadly By the late 1700s, hardly anyone could speak Hebrew anymore. The last Chinese rabbi passed away in 1810, with no one waiting in the wings, trained or qualified to fill his shoes. Countless centuries of intermarriage, assimilation, and complete isolation from the rest of world Jewry sort of doomed the Kaifeng Jews. By 1854, the synagogue had fallen to ruin, The Qing dynasty by now was going downhill with a stiff wind at its back. There was enough chaos and despair in China to keep people's minds occupied during this time. The Taiping and Nian rebellions aren't going to help as far as providing an environment for the Kaifeng Jewish community to make a comeback. Truly, a lack of rabbis, if nothing else, is enough to put a major damper on any Jewish community. If there's no rabbi, there's no one to congregate around. So without this essential leadership to serve the spiritual needs of the Kaifeng Jews, their slide into assimilation and the abandonment of their faith and traditions happened that much faster. The ability to read and speak the Hebrew language was one of the first things to go. It's said that by the mid-1800s, so far had the Kaifung Jewish community slid, that they used to display the Torah scrolls in the central marketplace with a sign beseeching anyone who knew how to read Hebrew to come seek them out. By the late 1800s and into the 1900s, the Jews of Kaifung were rediscovered by Protestant missionaries and other Western travelers in China. Attempts had been made to revive the community. The Canadian Anglican Bishop William Charles White of Toronto, he tried, but his attempts were not successful. He helped establish the Catholic diocese in Hunan province, and this mission was to last for 25 years. And he purchased the land where the synagogue had stood for all those centuries. He also acquired many of the surviving garment and ritual pieces, the Torah scrolls, as well as the remaining stone steles, whose vanishing characters told the fading story of these Kaifeng Jews. Now, whether or not White was successful in bringing the remaining descendants of Kaifung Jews to Jesus Christ, I couldn't find, but he sure did try. Protestant missionaries purchased and later preserved any and all manuscripts they could get their hands on. And a lot of this stuff is held in the Klau Library at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, as well as in other libraries, museums, and private collections around the world. A lot has been returned to the Kaifung authorities. There's a letter someone from Kaifeng wrote to someone or other in the West. It said, quote, "...morning and night, with tears in our eyes and with offerings of incense, do we implore that our religion may again flourish. We sought elsewhere but could find none who understood Hebrew, which causes us deep sorrow." End quote. In 1866, after 700 years of the whims of the Yellow River and Mother Nature, the Kaifeng Synagogue, was destroyed for the last time, never to be rebuilt. There was also this sincere effort sponsored by the Sassoon family, the preeminent Jewish family in China. Their base was in Shanghai, and their business network stretched around the world. In 1900, the Shanghai Society for the Rescue of the Chinese Jews was set up. The Shanghai Jewish community, led by the Sassoon family, Helped to fund the effort. Unfortunately, there was a lot of effort expended and very little to show for when it was all said and done. In the end, they were only able to get eight Kaifeng Jews into Shanghai. While these visiting Jews did learn to read from the scriptures, the whole idea just never gathered sufficient momentum. There was something interesting I read regarding the servants who worked at the house where these eight Kaifeng Jews were placed. They were so surprised that these Kaifeng Jews and to a Shanghai knees, these guys were just hicks. They were treated with the kind of civility reserved for Western guests. You know, up until World War II and the Nazi atrocities, the lion's share of the Jews in Shanghai were the Sephardic sort. It wasn't until European Jewry scattered in the run up to World War Two and just afterwards that. European Ashkenazi Jews appeared in such great numbers in Shanghai. Well, this whole noble effort was well-intended. By the time the 1930s rolled around, everyone, including the Sassoons, had bigger fish to fry than rescuing the Kaifeng Jews. Then, 1937, the Japanese invasion of China began, and that's it. It was every man for himself, including in Kaifeng. Today, especially after China's opening up to the outside world in the 1980s, there have been efforts made to reach out to the hundreds of remaining descendants of these Kaifeng Jews. The synagogue is long gone, and almost no one practices the religion anymore, but the legends and stories of these Jews who settled in Kaifeng and built this community lives on. Something I read during my research, China never persecuted the Jews. From ancient times all the way up until World War II, when Harbin and Shanghai swung open their doors and gave refuge to Jews fleeing Russia and Europe, Chinese always had a good track record as far as getting along with the Jewish people and making room for them somewhere. Go have a listen to the CHP six-part series on the Jewish refugees who came to Shanghai to escape Nazi persecution in Europe. There were Jewish communities all over China for a thousand years from the Tang Dynasty on, but it was only the community they established in Kaifeng that was so long-lasting and well-documented. Today, there are a few chosen ones in China who have been given official Jewish ethnicity on their identity papers, but there aren't many, and this is a sensitive subject for a number of reasons. The number of Jews is so small that They didn't make it to the list of 56 official ethnic minorities. If they give the limited number of Jews or descendants of Jews this special recognition, then all these scattered minorities or groups that claim to be minorities might hop on the bandwagon and make similar demands. There have been several good documentaries and books written that offer more details on this subject. The World Wide Web has a ton of newspaper articles and other material if you want to read more there's a lot that, by sheer luck, did make it down to the present day for scholars to glean through and teach us. But for the most part, all the eggs of these Kaifeng Jews were in one basket as far as where the synagogue kept all the records and histories of this one-time ancient community. So much happened that we'll never know about due to the ravages of time. Some Jewish communities around the world who are particularly passionate about this subject have reached out to these descendants of Kaifung's Jews, and some of these people in Kaifung have been in communication with some of these groups too. So the spirit is rekindled, if it ever left at all. The subject of Chinese Jews is one of those that's peculiar enough to us to do a double-take. There's so much the two races share in common many Confucian ethics, diasporas from time to time, a worldwide community that suffered persecution, similar values on education, family, learning, and other things. So I guess the story of the Kaifeng Jews isn't so far-fetched or hard to believe. So let's bring things to a close here. Again, this is a topic that professional and amateur scholars and researchers the world over have studied. This is just a short and simple overview of their story, and I invite anyone who wants to dig deeper to get on the Google and search to your heart's content. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is Laszlo Montgomery, as usual, signing off from Los Angeles, California. Take care, everybody, and I hope to see you again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.